Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS On Air Conversations podcast channel. Our conversation today will consist of a deep dive on COVID-19 vaccines and opportunities in the healthcare sector. Joining me is Tom Dignan, Lead Equity Investment Specialist with UBS Asset Management, as well as Matt Kanoski, Lead Portfolio Manager for UBS Asset Management's healthcare and biotech portfolios. Topics that Tom and Matt will cover today include everything from vaccines and where we stand today to investment opportunities and most importantly, when will this all be over? So Tom, I know you will be leading today's conversation with Matt, so welcome. I'll pass it over to you. Well, thank you, Daniel. Thrilled to be back, and I'm really glad we have Matt here today. So let's jump right in. Uh, Matt, can you provide us a quick update on where we are with the vaccines in light of all the recent headlines from both Novavax and Johnson & Johnson? Sure, Tom. Um, so, so this year has picked up right where 2020 left off with several very important vaccine data points in, in just the last couple of weeks. Um, as we stand today, we, we have efficacy data for, for five major programs developed across, uh, three very distinct vaccine platforms, which, um, if we step back for, for just a moment is, is pretty remarkable given it was just a year ago, uh, almost to the day when we, when we first sequenced the, the novel virus. Now, it's not surprising that everyone is trying to distill down these vaccine results into a, a single efficacy number to compare them against the, the very high bar that was set by the mRNA vaccines. Um, but that's not necessarily the, the, the right approach. Um, everyone on this call probably recalls uh, that late last year, both the Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines demonstrated 95% reduction um, in infection risk. And appear to offer pretty near complete protection against severe COVID cases and, and hospitalizations. Now, against this benchmark, the, the headline results for Novavax and Johnson & Johnson last week um, are clearly a little bit disappointing, and, and some have argued represent a, a setback on, on the road to reopening. Um, it just by quick background, Novavax reported about 89% efficacy of their protein subunit vaccine in a U.K. trial but only 50% in a smaller study uh, run in South Africa where uh, the, the patients and exposure was skewed heavily to uh, one of the emerging variants uh, that I'm sure we'll talk more about. Meanwhile, Johnson & Johnson's viral vector vaccine demonstrated uh, only 66% efficacy in a global trial uh, of a single-dose regimen. Um, a similar study looking at a two-dose regimen um, is still ongoing and um We'll have to wait and see kind of whether that additional dose uh, confers an additional efficacy benefit or not. And and for viral vectors, uh, the J&J results look broadly comparable to, to what we saw even, even earlier uh, last year from the AstraZeneca and Oxford uh, vaccine developed on a very sim- uh, similar platform. Now, trying to make direct comparisons across clinical trials is is pretty challenging even in normal times, let alone in the uh, the middle of a global pandemic. And several novel variants uh, to SARS-CoV-2 have emerged in recent months, uh, the most notable of which are the, the UK, South African, and Brazilian variants. And while our understanding of these variants is, is far from complete, each of them, um, at a minimum, appears more transmissible, uh, more virulent, uh, or possibly even both. Now, this is important because the mRNA vaccines were tested before these variants were widely circulating, and therefore the bar to demonstrate 95% efficacy is is higher today than it was even just one or two months ago. 
Um, now, subsequent testing has, has demonstrated these uh, mRNA vaccines remain quite effective um, against uh, these novel variants, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the efficacy is unchanged at 95%. So I'd argue it's it's important here to, to, to look at the totality of data instead of trying to zero in on, on a, a single point estimate of efficacy. And and stepping back like this, both of the, the new vaccines uh, from J&J and Novavax appear pretty uh, very effective at, at reducing the incidence of severe COVID infections and hospitalizations. Uh, each also has much less stringent storage and handling requirements, um, and, and J&J potentially offers the, the additional advantage of requiring only a single dose. And those are really non-trivial uh, differences uh, when you're in the middle of a pandemic and trying to uh, vaccinate a global population. There, there are still some, some really key unanswered questions here, though, particularly about the do, uh, right dosing regimen and dosing interval for uh, the viral vector vaccines by, by J&J and Oxford. Um, and we're going to learn more about this in, in the coming weeks and months, um, but, but it is kind of one cause for caution. Now, we can debate the role of these vaccines in the U.S. where uh, we're in the fortunate position of, of having broad access to the mRNA vaccines by midsummer, um, potentially putting us on a path to herd immunity, even if these vaccines were not to come into play. Um, but it's really without question that both of these vaccines are going to play an important role around the globe, uh, not just in developing markets, but in large parts of Europe and Asia. Um, now, for the U.S., like I said, we're, we're in a bit of a fortunate situation, and it will be, be interesting to see whether the, these vaccines, um, assuming they're approved in the next couple months, um, uh, play an important role, or if uh, patients and physicians choose to vaccine shop and, and basically wait until enough doses of the mRNA vaccine are available uh, to get vaccinated. Well, but now that we have, we appear to have several vaccines in hand, how long will it take to vaccinate the majority of the U.S. population and achieve herd immunity? So from a vaccine development perspective, we, we, we executed almost flawlessly. Uh, however, when it's come time to manufacture, distribute, and, and ultimately get shots into um, into people's arms, uh, a number of challenges have, have begun to emerge. And it's, it's become increasingly obvious over the, the past month or two, um, that we, we didn't put anywhere near enough effort, uh, to build out the necessary infrastructure to administer vaccines on a national scale. So at the, the current run rate of about a million and a half vaccines per day, it would take until, um, late November, early December to vaccinate 75% of the U.S. population, which is, um, really the threshold to think about when you're, you're talking about herd immunity. Now, now reasonably, we should be able to increase this, um, at least double this to, to two and a half or three million vaccinations a day, which would pull this timeline forward to uh, sometime in mid to late August. Now, importantly, this all assumes a, a two-dose regimen is required, um, as is the case with the mRNA vaccines and Novavax. Um, J&J obviously might be an exception. Um, and, and, the August timeline that I laid out could be um, realistic, even if we relied exclusively on the mRNA vaccines, uh, because we are expected to have about 600 million total doses uh, split between Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna uh, by the end of June, and um, that would allow us to to vaccinate um, people by the August timeline. Um, now. Given the existing supply constraints around mRNA vaccine production, um, there, there's not necessarily a lot of opportunities to pull this forward unless 
either uh, Moderna, I'm sorry, unless either J&J or Novavax um, becomes a, a very important vaccine modality in the U.S. And, and these are just being filed for emergency use authorization now, um, putting approval off at, at least another couple of weeks to a couple of months. So um, I'm really thinking kind of that late summer is kind of really the best point estimate of, of when we'll get there. Well, I guess that's important because, you know, based on the vaccination timeline you just outlined, does that mean it won't be until late summer before we can really move ahead with the broad scale reopening? So so fortunately, no, just because the vaccinations are likely to stretch out um, well into summer, that that doesn't mean we won't be able to make meaningful progress in reopening um, the economy. And and basically here we need to make the distinction between reaching herd immunity and reopening. Now, by prioritizing our, our initial vaccinations to most vulnerable populations, so, so think about the elderly and, and frontline workers, we, we should start to reduce the risk of widespread transmission and reduce the rates of hospitalizations and death, um, even if the absolute number of cases um, remains elevated. Um, as the weather warms up in, in, in a month or two, just, just simply moving more and more activities outdoors um, should go a long way to reducing transmission as well. I, I think the big challenge here is going to be ensure that, ensuring that individuals step forward to get their vaccination and comply with the redosing requirements. Having enough individuals to vaccinate right now is, is not at all an issue because um, demand far outstrips the available supply, but, but that's eventually going to change. And convincing traditionally underserved communities, many of whom remain skeptical about vaccines in general, as well as younger individuals who likely view themselves as being at low risk, um, is going to be essential to, to breaking this chain of transmission. Um, an important point here is that many of the, the more optimistic estimates I've seen floating around out there about the U.S. reaching herd immunity as, as early as, as late April, early May, are, are based on the premise that 20 to 25 percent of the U.S. population already counts towards herd immunity because they've already had um, a symptomatic COVID infection. Um, I take some issue, I guess, with this assumption for two reasons. First, we're, we're not currently prioritizing individuals for vaccination based on whether or not they were previously infected, and we don't really routinely test for antibody levels. And second, while the risk of being reinfected with the original strains of COVID appears quite low, um, it appears the same cannot be said for some of the novel variants, most, um, most notably the, uh, the ones circulating in South Africa. Now, the data here comes from the placebo arm of the Novavax trial, um, where a third of the patients were antibody positive at baseline. So basically, it looked as though they had already recovered from a previous COVID infection, um, most likely were involving one of the original strains. And the, the interesting finding here was that the infection rate observed um, was no different um, than that in individuals who did not have antibody levels at baseline. So those pre previous antibodies were not protective um, against at least the novel South African strain. Now, there are other mutations out there. Um, the Brazilian variant in particular looks quite similar to uh, South Africa. So, so logic would suggest that this could pose a significant reinfection risk as well. Now, it, the, the real takeaway here is that these findings suggest that the virus has discovered a way to evade antibodies to previous infection, uh, so-called antigenic drift, in at least two separate instances. Now, 
the fortunate takeaway before everyone comes away kind of overly concerned by this is that the, the very robust antibody response generated by at least the mRNA vaccines still appears to have enough margin for protection so that um, these novel variants are not able to um, escape, um, which is, is obviously the key to ending the pandemic. Well, that, that's good because you're reaching the point where it's, it's good when the pandemic because you're not going to be invited to any cocktail parties anyways with this news. Um, so if, if the virus is already mutating enough to escape the body's natural immune response, what stops this and how do we not find ourselves locked in some sort of Groundhog Day scenario? So uh, the fact that the virus is mutating is, is, is frankly not all that surprising. And um, while coronaviruses typically mutate at a, a slower rate than many other viruses, that, that really doesn't matter uh, very much when uh, you have the scale of active infections uh, that we currently have uh, around the globe. Um, it is a bit concerning that the, the virus stumbled upon a very similar mutation um, in two different continents. So here I'm referring to the, the South African and the Brazilian variants. Um, and it's concerning because this suggests that there's some survival advantage here. Um, and while we don't know the full clinical implications of this, um, it is at least something to, to, to keep our eyes on and, and, and to be a little concerned with. Now, now, just to be clear, not all of the variants that we see out there um, are capable of reinfecting patients or even more virulent. Uh, the UK variant, um, obviously, uh, is almost certainly more transmissible, um, as we've seen uh, driving the outbreaks in the UK. But it does not appear to pose um, any significant reinfection risk at this time, which is a very good thing. Um, in addition, we talked about how we already have evidence that the mRNA vaccines generate a very robust immune response, which, which appears to address these variants today. Um, so the, the other key to really breaking this cycle is, is the major advantage of these mRNA platforms is it's not just the robust immu um, immune response that they generate, but the fact that we have the ability to rapidly reformulate a new vaccine to go after a slightly different target. Um, having demonstrated the safety of, uh, of this platform across now tens of millions and soon hundreds of millions of individuals, um, it's very likely that future vaccines can be approved without full-blown efficacy trials. I mean, this is essentially what we do with the, uh, the reformulation of the influenza vaccine every year. So combined with the fact that we'll have a lot more of the manufacturing infrastructure and mass vaccination sites in place, um, I'm very hopeful that if, um, if, if it comes time to develop a second generation vaccine, we, we could be developing that um, in something closer to eight to 10 weeks versus the eight to 10 months that it took us this first time. Now, uh, for some of the other platforms, like with viral vectors, um, it's not as well suited to developing a next generation vaccine. Um, but Novavax's uh, protein subunit approach could uh, potentially play a key role. And there's some very early work about trying to formulate a, a combination kind of coronavirus plus influenza vaccine. So there, there's still a lot of unknowns. It's still a very fluid situation. We need to, to, to figure out how long these initial uh, immunizations provide protection for. Um, and while it seems increasingly clear that this is not going to be a one-and-done approach, but there'll be some sort of revaccination or boosting required, um, we're going to be in a lot better position for that than we were um, last March, last April. So um, 
I think we're we're definitely in a position to really break this cycle. It's just a question of kind of how fast can we get to that herd immunity and, and start to move on. All right. Well, now you're coming around. Maybe you will get invited to some of those cocktail parties in the future. So where, where do we go from here? What are the key remaining unknowns? So, so as we stand today, U.S. cases, hospitalizations, and, and deaths are, are declining off of their December peaks. Um, but, but quite frankly, they, they still remain elevated. Now, um, many people presume that, that, that these ongoing trends are going to continue, um, particularly as vaccinations of, of vulnerable populations help to offset um, any effect of reopening the economy. Um, However, we've been a little bit fortunate in the U.S. and we haven't seen as many of these novel variants, so it, it would not be completely surprising to see at least one more kind of wave of cases uh, before late spring, um, although hopefully um, we won't return in any way to um, to the peak levels that we saw in December. Um, it, it's obviously been a very long road to recovery, and, and we're all hoping that we're kind of getting to the end of these extreme lockdowns, um, but but we're not finished yet. And, and at this point, COVID-19 has, has become so widespread that it's, it's unlikely to ever completely go away. Even if we can achieve kind of broad vaccination in the U S and, and much of Europe by the fall, um, there's going to be large swaths of the global population who are going to be unvaccinated um, well into 2022 and, and, and honestly possibly even beyond that. And this is going to create a, a, a potential reservoir for, for viral mutations um, and could spawn the emergence of more novel variants. But again, I, I want to stress this doesn't mean that we're going to face anything close to the same level of disruption as, as we've experienced in the last year. Um, sure, extremely large gatherings and, and unrestricted international travel um, might be an issue for, for some period of time to come. But the hope is that with continued testing and surveillance, so think about some of the rapid testing that is being done in schools and workplaces, uh, as well as wastewater monitoring, um, we can very quickly identify kind of sporadic regional outbreaks before they become um, full, full-blown situations um, that, that overwhelm our health system. And, and this combined with higher levels of immunity, either from, from vaccination or from repeat infection, should, should allow us to, to start to coexist with COVID, um, much as we do with influenza today. I think really the, the biggest unknown to me is whether we can, can look ahead and make the necessary investments in, in monitoring and surveillance to, to keep an active eye out for, for emerging viral threats so that we can spot the next one um, before it becomes a, a global pandemic. There's obviously a lot of things that had to line up just right to let SARS-CoV-2 completely shutter the global economy, but there, there's plenty of other viral threats out there, and, and, and we can't simply be compl- complacent and assume that this, um, this is something that could just never happen again. Okay, well, so in light of everything we've talked about today, what does this mean from the investment perspective? And, and even more specifically, how can investors position themselves within healthcare? So the consensus narrative coming into 2021 was that um, despite very attractive relative valuations in healthcare and um, the the narrow Democratic sweep in the 2020 elections combined with the, the reopening trade was was going to combine to, to make healthcare a relative underperformer. Um, However, I would take the, the opposite side of that argument for a couple of reasons. Um, 
For starters, um, despite the reopening of the economy, um, many of the COVID-related tailwinds that have benefited healthcare are, are likely to extend well into 2021 and, and most likely beyond. Outside of the developed markets like the U.S. and Europe, vaccinations, even initial vaccinations, extend well into 2022. And it's becoming increasingly clear that revaccinations in some way, shape or form are going to be required, um, either as immunity wanes or as the coronavirus mutates. This is going to create, obviously, incremental demand um, up and down the healthcare system. At, at the same time, diagnostic testing is going to not go away anytime soon. Um, we've got to be very vigilant in looking out for these regional outbreaks. Um, I don't think some of the school testing that is, is done is, is going to stop immediately after Labor Day. Um, and again, this is another source of incremental demand for the health system. But... Probably the last point, and I think this is maybe the most unappreciated by, by many investors, is the, the coronavirus has really exposed tremendous inequities um, in the access uh, to quality, affordable health care in the U.S. Um, there's nearly 30 million Americans uninsured and many, many millions more uh, who are underinsured. And as part of a broader social agenda, I think the Biden administration is going to work very hard to try and shore up the Affordable Care Act um, and further extend health coverage uh, to these underserved populations. And, and this is going to create incremental demand for health care services um, above and beyond any catch up from uh, the, the deferred procedures that occurred during the pandemic. So I guess to, to tie it all together, in, in, in many respects, 2021 seems very reminiscent to me of the early years of the Affordable Care Act rollout, where, where health care really performed very well as coverage expansion um, increased demand for, for health care services. And importantly, we see some of the most attractive opportunities in, in small and mid-cap companies that are helping transform the health system um, to be both more accessible and more affordable. And these are the companies that um, typically are underrepresented in the broader market indices. So it, it's very helpful uh, to, to come at it with a, a very active, high active share um, approach to um, generate the most value. Well, Matt, I, I have to say thank you because I think you had some excellent insights, both from the, the COVID standpoint, but also how to tie that in with some, you know, really the investment landscape where there's some real opportunities. Well, Tom and Matt, thank you for your time, insights, and for joining us on the UBS On Air Conversations podcast channel for these important updates and a look at where we stand with respect to the vaccine. Many developments that we will continue to track closely as we progress through the year. So look forward to having follow-up conversations with you both on these very important topics. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. Again, today we have been joined by Tom Dignan, Lead Equity Investment Specialist with UBS Asset Management, as well as Matt Konoski, Lead Portfolio Manager for UBS Asset Management's Healthcare and Biotech Portfolios. The UBS On Air Conversations podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements.
It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.